The story of Charitable Ventures is a movie-worthing rags-to-riches story of grand proportions. It stars a plucky grant writer named Ann Olin with business acumen, management superpowers, and a social conscience. If anyone thinks that forming networks is not important to success, they have never had success like Ann Olin. Ann leveraged her deep network with both the organizational side and the philanthropic side of the social sector to create a for-profit social enterprise called the Olin Group. You as Ann Olin started a consulting firm called the Olin Group that mm-hmm. did nonprofit consulting. Right. And you were considered, I mean, I don't want to, uh, I don't want you to toot your own horn, but you were considered one of the top consultants in Orange County for mm-hmm. sure. Very I mean, kind. Partly partly because you always had really good relationships and networks and fun, uh, with funders and with organizations. So that helped a lot. Yeah. But you had that going on and the fact that you're a really good business person as evidenced by what we're talking about today. Yeah. Um, but then you, was it your idea to start charitable ventures or was it brought to you by the community foundation or how did that come about? Well, I, I do blame Shelly Haas. I, I, I think it's her fault. We're just going to give that to her. Um, you know, so I started the Olin group in 2002 as a sole proprietorship. And it really was an act of desperation. I was did not envision myself as an entrepreneur, as a businesswoman. Um, I had just had my child. My husband lost his job. And the, the, the driver for me was, what can I do to earn money to pay the mortgage and still stay home with my baby? And I had been a grant writer up at a LA nonprofit, you know, after grad school. And so I just picked up the phone here in Orange County, not knowing anybody, um, saying, I write grants, do you need help? And um, it was hunger and it was fear and it was mortgage payments. So that be- began the Olin group. So, you know, what year my, was that? that was 2003, about 2002, 2003. I like to say that my that I had a business and a baby, and that was all I could handle. You know, they were both born about the same time. Mm. So in 2002, 2003, sole proprietorship grant writing, and I think, you know, the driver of survival uh, made me very keen to be relevant and to be uh, uh, seen as someone who performed. Um, you know, not a great businesswoman, didn't price myself well, was awkward around asking for fees. I still am. But... I performed and was able to pick up, you know, clientele after that. What's interesting is that in 2006, the Olin Group got big enough that it needed staff. I needed to get out of the house and we got our first office in Santa Ana. Um, So we were growing and moving 2006, 2007. I think by the time 2008 came around, I think I had about 10 employees. Um, And then we hit the wall. You know, um, so the interesting part of charitable ventures growth is that it occurred right as Olin Group got cut in half. So back to your original question on whose fault this is, um, in 2007, when things were growing on the upward trajectory, I was getting calls for community projects looking for incubation and sponsorship. And I was a for profit. So I looked around Orange County and I think someone pointed me toward the community foundation and I didn't know Shelly at the time. She has since become so dear to me as, you know, my mentor, my sister, my, you know, the person oh, I cry amazing. on. she's amazing. She's a genius. She is a genius with a heart, which is a, a rare find. And I said, could I refer these calls to you? And she said, come talk to me. And so at the time, they really were the only game in town if there was a new community project that needed incubation. But 
their holding of DAFs, donor advised funds, and their being a community foundation made incubating project work problematic. So I said, well, I'm not a for I'm not a nonprofit. And she said, well, why don't you start one? And so the joke is the only seed funding we got was a $5,000 grant for the community foundation to launch this thing. And mm-hmm. so took the 5,000, launched it. And what they did was they transferred, I would say three or four of their project funds to us as a new incubator. And they said, call us, call us if you need technical support. There was no staff and no fundraising from 2007 through 2010. So the Olin group staff, um, plus, you know, some auditors, some legal, some, you know, our accountants, which were outsourced, were the engine for charitable ventures. And so from my perspective, it was really all the same mission. It just happened to be a nonprofit expression of, of our for-profit business. But I really saw them as one at the beginning. Welcome to 501c3 BS, busting the myths of the social sector and deprogramming you for organizational growth. Brought to you by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton College of Business and Economics, celebrating our 25th anniversary year in 2021. I'm Zoot Velasco, director of the Gianneschi and your host for this podcast journey. When I created an academic study of the organizations that grew from small to large during the recession, I discovered 29 recession stars that more than doubled during the recession and continued to grow, achieving the status of being in the Million Dollar Club, organizations with an annual budget of over a million dollars. And Charitable Ventures, our subject today, is the star of the recession stars, with the most growth of the 6,450 organizations that I studied. They went from a newly minted organization in 2008 with a budget of just $193,000 at the beginning of the recession to 1.2 million in 2012 at the end of the recession. Now that's a 624% increase during the Great Recession. And then, They jumped to $7.5 million in 2018 when I concluded my study. That's a total of a whopping 3,880% growth. And that's not all. They're still growing to this day. How did they do it? Did you have to put some money from Ann Olin Group into Charitable Ventures? Or was it basically like a pro bono thing where you're just working for free to get it it started? It was both. I would say it was a subject of many arguments between my husband and I. Uh, I am more philanthropically inclined, I would say, than he was. But I was—I've been the pro bono uh, executive director for this whole time until the merger when I became staff. So it was a combination of I was just serving as the pro bono leader, um, but also we would assign our for-profit staff project management, incubation, accounting tasks. So it was in kind, it was pro bono, we paid the rent, we, you know, ordered software. So it was really the for-profit was incubating the incubator for many of those years. And then I would say about if you can, if you can see it, you know, there's no staff, there's no staff. In 2011, when Charitable Ventures really was starting to grow, we, we had one staff. And then we hired another staff. And so what you, what you had is the more staff that Charitable Ventures could support, the fewer Olin Group staff 
were necessary. And so probably around, um, I'm trying to see here, in 2012, our, our subsidy was, the Olin Group subsidy was high because the projects were getting more complex. But about 2015, when Charitable Ventures is starting to go after direct county contracts itself, not just doing incubation, but was getting into the business of running its own contracts, at that point, there was enough staff to run operations, but there wasn't enough staff to hire a leader. So I was continuing to serve as the executive through that time. It really so, wasn't until 2017 when that just got too much to, to handle. And then we started to think about bringing it, the two companies together because I couldn't run them both. They were getting both too big. People in Orange County often see a need that is not being filled. These people may be connected to a funder that wants to help them, or they may even be a funder themselves. But how do they do it successfully? It takes years to set up a 501c3 while developing a back office to handle the accounting, marketing, fundraising, planning, and administration of grants and contracts. And people who have expertise in a program, they don't necessarily have the business mind to do this administrative work. And that, that my friends, is where a fiscal sponsoring organization comes in. Known as incubators, these are organizations that can handle the administrative side while an organization develops their brand, reputation, and quality of programming. You may remember that we did a podcast about fiscal sponsorship at the very beginning of our podcast, our second episode. You can go back and look it up. I think the growth between 2009 and 2012 was all related to fiscal sponsorship. So we haven't yet gotten in the game of going after county contracts or multi-million dollar anything. So, but the con the, the projects coming to us began to be larger in size, uh, able to attract more foundation support uh, going forward. But it was still all, I would say, pure incubation work or back office work for fiscally sponsored projects. That is the key mission of, of the organization as it mm-hmm. was founded, right? Uh, as it was founded, now it has an expanded mission that includes the consulting component. Um, and I think the new mission post-merger will make us more sustainable going forward. Um, and then, of course, no, you know, the irony of me being a grant writer to start is Charitable Ventures never sought philanthropic capital, that it was my goal always to make this a nonprofit that could be sustained on its own earned income because I'd seen so many nonprofits uh, be dependent on uh, donations and grant support. As I went up until this, the 2017 is when we started talking merger and this were interesting conversations with Shelly. And I remember having a conversation with Terry Dorizaki at Weingart Foundation too, was the challenge that came back to me. And it's like, it, it's true that you have a lot of earned income here and that's good, but it's actually not sustainable. You are not charging enough to these community projects to really even hire an executive. If you got hit by a bus and couldn't do this pro bono anymore, could you go out and replace yourself with a six-figure hire? And the answer was no. So, so the funding origin uh, where you went from $100,000 to over a million dollars, what was the main driving source of that revenue? So in 2010, 2011, we jumped from 10 projects to 16. And I, I think that the, what started to happen is that those 16 projects were beginning to be projects that were attracting the institutional funders. 
So I would say early on, those five projects we had in 2008 and the seven we had in 2009 truly were those grassroots projects that were community-driven, maybe volunteer-driven, getting individual donations. So it was smaller. And then as the projects became more complex or um, funders saw a need and kind of reached out to their partner groups, like looking for collaboratives, um, it would be, you know, maybe a funder would be like, we need a housing collaborative to come together and we'd like to fund it and it will be kind of TA focused. It's not direct service focused. And so those landed at Charitable Ventures as a neutral home for some of that. So I would say that the growth, the dramatic growth as we got into millions in revenue was that shift from individual community support to foundation support. And then so, the, the next dramatic shift was when we started to get into the public contracting. All right. So, so you're, you're making a hundred thousand dollars and mm -hmm. somewhere in 2011, you, you know, you've been growing steadily, but in 2011, you have this big growth and you say it's a shift from individual community support to foundation support. Is that, are you talking about that people are coming to you to be incubated and they're coming with funders or mm -hmm. they're coming to you to be incubated and you're finding funders for their projects or is it just earned income or what? I would say the former, what you just said. So, you know, one example was, you know, Katerina's Club before they became a 501c3. This is a food yeah, distribution. I know. Yeah. Bruno Serrato is a celebrity chef and owner of the famous restaurant and historic landmark Anaheim White House restaurant. Chef has cooked with celebrities and dignitaries from all over the world. In 2005, Chef Bruno founded Katerina's Club, inspired by his mother, Katerina to serve warm, nutritious meals to many of the homeless and transient children that live in the motels and streets of Anaheim. Charitable Ventures helped them get Katerina's Club established. So when they came to us, um, they were getting- Br Bruno's you know, group, right? Exactly. They yeah. were getting donated pasta. They were getting individual donations. Maybe a few grants, but they were small, five, fives and tens. But they were doing really well, and they were feeding daily, you know, the children of Anaheim. In 2014, Stephen Kim and Mary Vu founded Project Kinship with a small grant at Charitable Ventures to provide support for re-entry of formerly incarcerated citizens to schools and the workforce. Shortly after their founding, Proposition 47 was passed by voters, leading to millions of new dollars for prison re-entry programs. Charitable Ventures made Project Kinship battle ready for the exponential growth of the organization as the conduit for Prop 47 programs in Orange County with $4 million in new funding over just a few years. Most organizations would not have been able to handle that, and Project Kinship certainly wouldn't have been able to either without Charitable Ventures' support. You know, fast forward to an emerging Project Kinship which was starting to get, you know, 20,000 grant here for research, 25,000 grant here for reentry work. Um, and it was connections that the project directors, the, the founders of these projects had brought with them. So the shift from individual donors, volunteer driven, um, smaller contributions to grants, partnerships, um, external drivers, and then community leaders that had those connections and were bringing those projects. So the, the projects got more complex and the partnerships got more connected. So Project Kinship is, is a project that we've incubated that, that really to me embodies the value of incubation. The story of Project Kinship is it started 
with $25,000, two people came to me, uh, Steve Kim and Mary Vu, both social worker background, both have hearts for reentry. And in Orange County, there has not historically been many nonprofits focused on reentry services. So they both had full-time jobs, but they said, would you receive this grant for us? We've been asked to do this research, this landscape analysis. And I said, yeah, sure. So they started with 25,000. Now they're 5 million a year with 40 plus employees. And the evolution of that story, you know, Steve and Mary both having other full-time jobs and families to support doing this on the side until they kept getting grants and they kept getting grants and they were the only game in town and they had a really unique model, trauma-informed care, mental health support, and, you know, collaboration and partnership. Until I remember having the conversation with them saying, you got to quit your day jobs. This is going to go. And they, I would say in 2015, 2016, they were about ready to launch as their own 501c3. Um, perfect use of the incubator. And then what happened was Prop 47 was passed. The state of California pushed a lot of money into Orange County, over $4 million. And there was no place to put it but Project Kinship. So it has, they are still with us as a very large project, in part because the receipt of that public contract would have overwhelmed their systems and killed them. So the partnership where an incubator can be incredibly helpful is we, you know, it, in all honesty, it, it almost killed us, but we took on the administrative and fiscal burden of that public contract so that they could focus on building up their staff and their programs and continue to serve. So they are this close to being able to launch as their own 501c3, only delayed by their own success. Um, and that is, to me, the epitome of why incubation. Um, there was no reentry services in Orange County that was sustainable. We were able to be that back office and that, you know, we talk to them every day. I mean, we, they are the experts, but, you know, they're, we are their arms and legs and um, they are part of our incredible growth and we were a part of their incredible growth and um, really beautiful stories. So Katarina's Club, go back to that because I, I you, you went from there to uh, Project Kinship and I got confused where they. So the, I would say the difference in my mind of those two projects, they both come to an incubator. They're both looking for back office support. I consider Project Kinship um, a a more complex and evolving project um, that required more support. Or Katarina's Club was much more contained. They did food distribution. And what they, you know, they, they didn't really need, once they figured out fundraising and grants, and they didn't need us any longer. And so the, in terms of the size and the ability and the capacity for growth, I was making, I was trying to make a distinction between the projects we were initially attracting were those smaller, more community-based contained projects. As we grew, I noticed that the project started to shift to cities, regions, or countywide. And then the revenue sources expanded with that expansion as well. So the nature of our project started to change, which allowed us to grow. Uh, So you started in 2007 with Charitable Ventures, right? Yes. So by 2008, when the recession hit, how many were you incubating at that time? Do you know? We had five projects in 2008. 
And how many did you have in 2012? We've gotten up to 17. And so, today we have 38. And 38 today. So the exponential size of growth has a lot to do with backing good horses too, then, doesn't it? It, it does. Um, and the, our ability to handle more complexity allowed us to be more attractive to more interesting projects that had deeper relationships with the funding community. So we had to evolve and get uh, more comfortable with, with providing deeper back office services. Um, and then that, I think, opened the door to other opportunities. So from what I'm hearing you then, the best way to describe your growth is that you brought in people like Bruno. I mean, Bruno is a force to be reckoned with in Anaheim. And everybody loves him. Everybody knows him. You know, he's going to succeed. Um, he's got that restaurant experience. So you, you backed good horses. You helped them figure out the nonprofit realm. And you provided the back office and all the support they needed to grow. Mm -hmm. But you you backed people who had the capacity to grow on their own. They just didn't have the facility. Yep. And you provided the facility. Exactly. Would you say that in all those cases that they came with funders in tow? Or did you have to do a lot of the funding introductions and and kind of um, be the, the connective tissue there? I would say the majority of them didn't hmm. come with funders in tow. And I think the, the one thing that we never did, you know, we, we as the Olin Group were very successful fundraisers behind our clients. And one of the values we had is that we, we were grant writers and analysts and planners, but we wanted to be invisible. And many of our clients were funders themselves. So there was a, a little bit of a Switzerland role we needed to stay in. Um, so we have never asked for funding on behalf of any of our clients or any of our projects. What we do is help them identify who might be an aligned partner or funder, how to approach. So we really viewed our role as that coach, technical assistant, like we'll review your grant strategy, we'll review your grant. You gotta pick up the phone and begin to establish that relationship and build your own brand. So Charitable Ventures isn't, a fundraiser. We don't go out and say, hey, you should take a look at this project. We do let the projects live or die on their own ability to develop those critical revenue relationships. But we're there to support them and even script them out if they need that scripting. So I think, I think we're doing what you say we're doing with just that nuance, which is we want these relationships to be theirs and not ours. So like when Project Kinship um, applied for Prop 47 money. Was that something you introduced them to or did they come to you with that and ask for help? Uh, the latter. So on the Prop 47, that, that was a fascinating because they, they, they said, can we go for it? And we said, yep. And they made a request, a multi-year request to the County of Orange because the state gave the funding to the county for only $800,000, which would have doubled them in size. Mm. Um, and we approved that request and it went out and then subsequent conversations, the county came back to us and said, we need to give it all to you. Can you take it? <laughs> so we, you know, we huddled with our project and, uh, Ted, Kim, my COO and I, we just looked at this huge contract and we looked at them and they were like, let's go. And 
you know, Steve and Mary have just brave hearts. They just want to serve this community. They have such love and they're like, let's go. And I just remember just saying, if you go down, charitable ventures go down. Like we, we're holding hands here. We had to front the hire of 30 people. Uh, we had to front services and, you know, mobile vans and like there was two or three months where we were holding the expansion of this countywide program with nothing and it just it almost took us to the edge so charitable you know project mm. kinship doesn't have a line of credit charitable ventures has the line of credit right so you put your entire for-profit business on the line in you know at that time olin group was still supporting so we stripped our reserves. We stripped down our line of credit. Olin Group's holding on. Uh, yeah, I was still the pro bono director. So Charitable Ventures was, you know, shaky. And, um, but we just had this understanding, like this was our opportunity. It was like a do or die. Like if we survive this, we could change the landscape. If we don't survive this, we're both going to be out of business. You know? yeah. So there was really an imperative. Now, I will be honest with you, there are other projects that I have worked with where I, I did not have that sense of trust and confidence in the leadership or their evolutionary state to take that leap of faith. This project was special. They may not have had the back office yet or the business acumen yet, but they had the heart, they had the vision, and they had a model that was worth investing in. And so we jumped in, you know, and Ted, who's my risk manager, my COO and my ex banker, he's like literally like shaking his head. Like, I can't believe we're doing this, you know? So I think, you know, to honor the other team members, I've always been one to put the gas pedal down. Like, let's go, let's go. My heart's telling me to jump. But I have been surrounded in just, it's been a blessing with people who are good at accounting, good at auditing, good at risk mitigation. and that was critical as we got through that three, four month period of just being out on the edge of the cliff mm. and HCA, I got to give them credit County of Orange. I mean, I remember looking at them and saying, you could kill us. And they leaned so hard into us. They, they bent over backwards inside the, you know, public contracts are hard and they didn't have a lot of wiggle room themselves, but wherever they could help us, they did. So it's just like we all leaned into it and it was really a beautiful success, I think, for the project, I think for the county, and ultimately for us because it stretched us and got us ready for the next multi-million dollar public contract, which happened to be the census. So that leap of faith and, you know, talk about being relevant, leaning into something dangerous and risky, but sorely needed, is that right combination? And, um, you know, if we had failed, we would have been, you know, it would have been a very public failure, but the success was also public. And we began to build the reputation that charitable ventures could handle contracts like this. An organization out there may say, sure, but Ann Olin knows all these funders. She just has to sit there and people bring projects to her. Doesn't Ann Olin have some kind of an advantage? Well, yes, she does. She's a brilliant leader a savvy manager, a great networker, and she's well-respected. She is a brand unto herself. All of the recession stars grew so much because they established themselves as a brand that can be trusted with great quality programs. 
but her success has not been without cost. She had to merge her hard-earned for-profit consulting business into the nonprofit social enterprise to achieve her goals, at times having to sacrifice personal dreams for the greater good. Anne Olin is nothing short of amazing. We're lucky to have her in our community. What does Anne have to teach us? Well, the importance of developing our networks and creating strategic partnerships. Her entire business model is based on it. The importance of earned income streams for stability and long-term success. The importance of good leadership and management practices. But above all, Anne is a model of social impact leadership. Our ambition may take turns we don't foresee, but if we truly keep social impact first in our priorities, we will ultimately leave the largest legacy on this world. Thank you to the Gene Eschy Center for Nonprofit Research, California State University Fullerton, and the College of Business and Economics for supporting our podcast. Our supporters include the Orange County Community Foundation, Southern California Gas Company, and you, our listeners. Thanks for the music provided to us by the California-based Brazilian Coro Ensemble, Grupo Falso Baiano. Have a great week, free from BS. Music